0: Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in the passage that Garth just read for you, Matthew 1 18. And as you're opening there, I want to talk to you a little bit about legitimacy. You know, uh, <clears throat> in our culture, particularly over the last four or five years, we have been thinking about and talking about legitimacy a lot. Uh, I think back to the 2016 election. There was a whole swath of people questioning the legitimacy of that election, and that questioning led all the way up to the beginning of 2020 uh, when we saw impeachment proceedings even involving the legitimacy of that election. And, and, And then we get into COVID season, and there's all sorts of information coming to us about covid and uh, there's all sorts of people questioning the legitimacy of various sources of information that come to us and then we get to the 2020 election and again you have now a whole another swath of people who are questioning The legitimacy of that election. You know, I think we're in a really uh, just culturally challenging season where the concept of legitimacy is in crisis. And and I think part of the reason for that is that our our shared frameworks for determining what is legitimate or not legitimate, they, they differ so much from each other in this culture, and they increasingly differ more and more and more. Now, I would love to spend a lot of time talking about how we as a culture define what is legitimate or not legitimate. But I think that's actually for a different time. This morning, morning what I want to do is I just want to emphasize how important legitimacy is for us. How important legitimacy is for us, especially as we approach the narrative of Christ's birth. You see, if we do not see a thing as legitimate, we will not accept it. If we do not see a thing as legitimate, we will not accept it. So we're going to take this concept of legitimacy and we're going to transport back in time about 2,000 years. And we're going to come upon the birth of one who is called Savior of the world. We're going to come upon his birth. and, And this is the story of the Savior of the world, the promised king who was coming. He was conceived by an unwed mother. He was born next to the animals. For his crib, they laid him in a feeding trough. Uh, He lived his very early life on the run, his family living their lives on the run from the government authorities. When he comes about and actually comes into doing his ministry, he gets challenged by every single major existing authority structure. I mean, he has followers, but his followers really are only obscure people from difficult or challenging or questionable backgrounds. Uh, this savior of the world eventually got killed because people were tired of hearing him talk. So I have a question, and that question is this. Why would the life of one who is called Savior of the world be surrounded by so much seeming illegitimacy? Like if I were, if I were God, and I'm not God, but if I were God, I think I might try to do things a little differently. Like, I think, I think I might, like, try to identify more legitimacy with this story, but the crazy thing is, and the amazing thing is, that God doesn't often operate according to any of our expectations. In fact, what we discover is that God's plan the whole time was to take these marks of seeming illegitimacy and actually use them to offer hope to any person who would desire to be right with him. So today, we're going to look at three significant marks of illegitimacy, why they are problematic, and why these very same marks of illegitimacy offer us hope. So three marks of seeming illegitimacy, starting in Matthew 1, 18. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... They came together. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So just something to be aware of. At this point in the story, Joseph is unaware of how Mary's pregnancy came about. All he knows is that he he found out that she is pregnant. He just knows that she is pregnant. Now, FYI, if they are betrothed, if they are uh, you kind of promise to be married but not yet married, then Mary should not be pregnant. Like, now, Joseph has, like, a good reputation, likely, in his community, and and what he knows is that when people see that Mary is pregnant, they are going to know the situation, and they're going to know that the situation is not good because there are two possibilities in everybody's mind for how this happened. Both of those possibilities are massive breaches of Jewish law. Both of those possibilities are incredibly shameful for this family. And so before this family even begins, uh, their marriage is just wrought with scandal at the beginning. Because no one one is actually going to believe, no one's going to know how this pregnancy actually came about. And, And then if you tell them how the pregnancy came about, like God did it, God himself is the source of the pregnancy, nobody's going to believe that explanation. Which means that everyone, Everybody who witnesses Mary, who witnesses her pregnancy, everyone is going to assume that unfaithfulness has occurred. So what we might be looking for as legitimate for the coming of a king in this time and in this place in history, we might look for somebody who has a clear family background, who is highly, uh, a family that is highly faithful to the law, that has a great reputation in the community, but that's not actually the story that we get. We get this mark of seeming illegitimacy. The first mark is this, that this conception would appear the result of unfaithfulness. So, so God would have to know, right? Like, He would have to know how people would look at this pregnancy, this event. Like, He would have to know that the optics of this are not good, that they are awful. Like, if, if you want to get your Messiah started on the right foot, like, don't create such a possibility for apparent unfaithfulness, that people will just look at that and say, that family is unfaithful. Like, you want to get your Messiah started well, right? And yet, this is what God does. So Joseph, being very aware of the optics, let's see how he responds in, chapter, in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph is fully aware of the Jewish law. He knows the problematic nature of everything that has taken place here. And and, and no one has told him anything yet. So all he has to assume in seeing Mary's pregnancy, all he has to assume is that she has been unfaithful. Now, why does the text tell us that he was a just man or a righteous man? Well, partially it tells us that so that we know Joseph's character. But the main reason was to explain his next determinations that he makes. See, Jewish law, Jewish law actually required a man to divorce an unfaithful wife. At this point in history, Jewish law requires a man to divorce an unfaithful wife, which means if Joseph is a just man, his only right action is to follow the Jewish law and actually divorce Mary. So he has to divorce her, but the fact that he is a just man leads him to do this in a way that is quiet, leads him to want to do so quietly because he knows something about what's going to happen if this divorce is made public. He knows the societal rejection that Mary is going to face. Like, he knows the embarrassment of Jewish court proceedings that she will have to go through. And he knows that if this becomes public, he knows all the more danger that is going to come her way because this divorce, because this situation is public. And you just need to know, like in this culture, if you face this kind of embarrassment, if you face this kind of exposure in a public way, there is no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps once you get to this point. Like she is stuck. She will not have access to wealth, she will not have access to shelter. She will not have access to food or health care. All of that would be severely, severely limited. Divorce itself would limit those things, but then a public divorce on top of that, it, it, it decreases the chance, it, it eliminates the chance that any other husband would take her and provide some sort of security for her and her child. So the whole situation endangers Mary. And Joseph is trying to plan some way that he can be just and righteous and be faithful while mitigating some of the danger for Mary. So the second mark of seeming illegitimacy is that this conception would put Mary at great risk. This conception would put Mary at great risk. Again, like if I'm the one planning this situation out, this is not the choice that I would have made. if she's the mother of the Messiah, I would think we would be finding ways to celebrate her, like throw a massive baby shower, like pamper her, but instead it appears that that her life is actually now in more danger than it was beforehand. So we're going to skip the angel's message for now. We'll come back to it, but I want you to go now to the end of the passage, verses 24 and 25. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So, so whatever the angel said to Joseph, this is what Joseph does. Joseph decides to go back and go through with this marriage, and Jesus is born. Matthew, he doesn't give us really very many details about the events surrounding Jesus's birth, but luckily Luke, he actually fills in some of those blanks about the details of Jesus 's birth, and this is what we know from Luke. while Mary is very pregnant, this uh, ruler of the land named Caesar Augustus, he issues a census. and what this means is that Mary and Joseph are going to need to go back to the, the town that joseph 's family is from. That town is Bethlehem. so they journey to Bethlehem and. Often what we read in our English translations is that when they get to Bethlehem, there is no room for them in this place called the inn. So Luke 2.7 tells us this. It says, uh, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So for what it's worth, in is probably not the best translation for this Greek word. Like, as we look at at Luke, use this Greek word in other places in his gospel, it actually more often gets translated upper room. And more often gets translated upper room. Now, so we understand what the upper room is. A Jewish home in Bethlehem would likely have two levels, an upper room and a lower room. The upper room is where the people live and sleep and go about their lives. The lower room is where all families would keep their livestock and their animals. This is just kind of how the Jewish household functioned. And so this, this lower room, is the place that Mary was staying. So, so that means something massive for us. That means, number one, what we're typically used to seeing, the picture of Jesus that we're typically used to seeing is them gathered together in the, in the stable, outside with the livestock, right? And, and actually what's happening is that they're in the house, but they're in the lower room of the house, and they're not at an inn. There's no innkeeper. There's no inn. So what does that mean? Well, well the most likely answer is like, where are they staying if they're not in an inn? Well, since they're going back to the town that Joseph's family is from, it is highly likely that the place they are staying is in the home of some of Joseph's family members because they traveled back to Bethlehem. It's very likely that they are staying with Joseph's family in this moment. So, So heads up, as we read the Bible, there are things that we are going to miss in Scripture because we are not steeped in the culture of the writers and the people who are reading these things. And there are values that are baked into these cultures that we do not naturally understand because we live 2,000 years later in a completely different culture. One of those values that is steeped into the the reality of the writers and the readers of the Bible is hospitality. Hospitality. Uh, so so hospitality, the rules of hospitality, these are ways that you just naturally operate in society. The rules of hospitality say, when someone is injured on your property, you help them. When someone comes to your door and they are hungry and they ask for food, you feed them. When someone comes to your door and they need a place to sleep, you, you inconvenience yourself, you sleep on the floor and you give them your bed. That is the honorable thing to do. That is the right thing thing to do these thoughts for what it's worth these thoughts do not come naturally to us because in our culture our space is our space our space belongs to us but back then the social expectation is that you would go out of your life out of your way to serve the person who approaches your space okay so mary is pregnant and they approach joseph's family's house when Luke says there, is, there was no place for them in the upper room, this is what he's really saying. He's saying that Joseph's family would not make room for this illegitimate birth. They would not inconvenience themselves for Mary's birth. Instead, what they did is they said, "No what? you, you, can, you can go downstairs with the animals. You can stay downstairs with the animals." Joseph's family broke the rules of hospitality. Now, why did they know this? We don't, why did they do this? We don't have that uh, explanation. But the pregnancy, we know that the pregnancy wouldn't have looked good on this family, that it potentially could have brought some shame to them. And as a result, Mary has to give birth in the room where the animals live. So the third mark of seeming illegitimacy in this narrative about Christ's birth is that this birth was denied the most basic hospitality. This birth was denied the most basic hospitality. None of what we see fits nicely into the framework that would have legitimized him as Savior in this culture, but this is what happens. So what could God possibly be doing with all of this? Well, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And kind of explains, explains to the extent that after the explanation, after Joseph has this dream, he goes through with the marriage. And so the angel actually provides the answers for for why these marks of illegitimacy or seeming illegitimacy matter. So there are three answers for these marks of seeming illegitimacy. We see the angel appear to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 it says but as he considered these things behold an angel angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream saying joseph son of david do not fear to take mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the holy spirit verse 23 so so in in carrying this idea through he he quotes a prophecy it says behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son so joseph has this miraculous interaction with an angel and this angel clarifies what is uh really happening in this situation he tells joseph hey joseph you know what this was god's plan in fact he himself the holy spirit caused this to happen and and this explanation then to set joseph at ease what he does is he quotes a promise from scripture a promise about a coming king. He quotes from Isaiah seven fourteen, and he tells of a coming king uh, that, that prophecy tells of, uh, and it says that, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. These words come 700 years before Jesus ever arrives on the scene. So when the angel quotes these words to Joseph, Joseph understands. Like God is fulfilling a promise made long ago. So, the first answer to the seeming illegitimacy is that this apparent unfaithfulness actually reflects the faithfulness of God. It reflects that when God makes a promise, He keeps it. 700 years before, this promise was made, and now He's bringing it to, full, to fulfillment. When God says something, Will happen, it will happen, because he is faithful. So this seeming mark of unfaithfulness refet- reflects God's faithfulness. The angel goes on in, in verse 21 and it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, in Hebrew it's pronounced Yeshua. And it literally means Yahweh, the God of Israel. That was God's name. It means I am. Yahweh saves. Now, this is no surprise for a Messiah, but but what he saves from. Because the Messiah, we knew that the Messiah was coming to save. The Israelites knew that the Messiah was coming to save, but what he saves from is interesting. The angel says he will save the people from their sins. You know what Jewish people, as they thought about a Messiah, they believed their greatest enemies were the nations out there. And, and, and as, because of this reality that they looked at the nations and they saw the, the, the nations as their greatest enemies, it caused them to actually never look inside of themselves and evaluate an even more present enemy that was facing them. Like, to, to see inside of themselves and see their truest enemy, their own sin. Sin that takes the form of pride that says, I know better than God what is good for me. Sin that takes the form of bitterness that will cause one person to do great harm to others. Sin that takes the form of a a love of power that would lead a person to abuse and demean other people. Sin that takes the form of a love of reputation that will uh, cause a person to refuse to admit the truth even when they're faced with personal failure. You know, this this sin, it takes so many different forms, and at the root of it is a rejection of what God has deemed good and right. The penalty for sin, corruption, separation from God, and death. Because of sin, we deserve nothing from God except his wrath. But this child, what we're told about this child is that this child will come as one who saves from sin. So the second answer to the seeming illegitimacy is that the apparent risk to Mary's life will extend salvation to all people. So the final, the final answer comes at the end of the prophecy that the angel gives, Matthew one twenty three. Verse 23 says, Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child would come and would be both fully God and fully man. He would unite God and humanity in one person. So Jesus, as fully human, would become a substitute for human beings. He would spend his life continuing to be rejected by those he loved. He would die at the hands of his own countrymen. In his death, he would stand in our place, bearing God's wrath toward our sin, representing us and the judgment that is due to us. That's what he does as fully human. He is a perfect substitute for us in our place. But Jesus, as fully God, would have shoulders big enough to adequately bear the full weight of God's judgment towards sin, not just for one person, but for all who would believe in him. Jesus, as fully God, would have in himself the authority to declare sin forgiven and paid for because in him, full humanity and full divinity would cover sin. And as a result, Jesus would demolish the wall that separates us from God. The very sin that stands in our way, he would cleanse us and actually make it possible for God to be with us. So the third answer to the seeming illegitimacy is that he would continue to be rejected to make God with us possible. The denial and the rejection that we saw at his birth, it was only the beginning of the rejection that he would continue to face throughout his life, leading through his ministry all the way to his death on a Roman cross. Everywhere we turn in the Christmas story, it it shows us these seeming marks of illegitimacy and they lead us to this place on the cross where we see his atoning work, all of these concerns about legitimacy, they're all very unexpected. But what we see in the message from this angel, and what we see as we follow Jesus' story through to his death and then to his resurrection, is this. Through Jesus' illegitimacy, the reality of God with us becomes legitimate. So maybe you're here with us this morning, and you think the possibility of walking in life-giving, fulfilling, hopeful relationship with God is a non-starter for you. Like maybe you say things like, you don't know what I've done. God can't possibly accept me as I am. Don't you know who I am? There's no way that God could accept me. That is an illegitimate reality, but I've got good news. Like, God doesn't accept good people. Being good does not somehow make us legitimate enough to be able to walk with God, because you know what? Good people still have sin that needs to be paid for. The only thing that makes forgiveness and a life-giving, eternal relationship with God possible is that Jesus came as fully God and fully man to be a substitute in our place died in seeming illegitimacy to make people right with God. To make the reality of God with us actually legitimate for sinful human beings. His work is powerful enough to make even the worst sinner right. So what? So what what do we do with all of this? The reality that Jesus came fully God and fully man, that he might bring forgiveness of sin, that he might destroy the power of sin. What do we do with any of this? I just have one question, and that question is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? There are a couple of options I want to present to you. The first option would simply be this, believe, believe. In order to believe, to, to, to let Jesus know that you believe, I'd encourage you to pray to him, that you would admit your sin to him, that you would submit to him as Lord of everything, and then you would tell others the decision that you've made. If you want to place your trust in Jesus this morning, and if you want to tell somebody about it, we actually have a way for you to do that. Underneath this video is a button that says next steps. It'll take you to a place where you can check a box that says, uh, I want to accept Christ today. And so you can click that and submit that form, and uh, somebody would love to follow up with you and have a conversation with you. So if you want to believe in Jesus today, to have real, life-giving relationship with your Father who is in heaven, you can do that. So the first thing I would say is believe. The second thing I would say is worship. You know what, if we actually believe these things to be true about Jesus then the only right response for us is to worship. Immediately following this story uh, with Joseph and Matthew, immediately following it, we see a story about uh, guys called magi from the east. They're not from Jerusalem. They have no concept for the Jewish religion, but an angel appears to them. They see this star and they follow the star and the angel appears and they tell them who this child is. And when they arrive, at the home of this child, when they see him for who he is, their only response is to bow down and worship him. You know, in uh, the, the music and the various videos, you've seen five candles lit. We've lit uh, four different candles, and then on Christmas Day, we lit the fifth candle. We call it the Christ candle, but another word associated with that candle is adoration. And we use that word because we recognize that the only way that we can truly acknowledge that Christ has come is simply to worship and adore him. So what's gonna happen is I'm gonna pray and then we are gonna do just that. We're gonna sing one more song and worship together of our Lord and then we will close our service. So Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me please? Jesus, we thank you for the amazing gift that we have in you. That we can actually be reunited with our Father in heaven because you paid for our sin. That we can walk in life-giving, hopeful, joyful relationship with God because you covered us. Because you defeated sin's power over us that we need not make ourselves right. There's nothing, in fact, that we can do to make ourselves right. The making right happens through you. The legitimacy occurs through you. So God, we thank you for these gifts and we thank you that you're a God who works in unexpected ways because all of our expectations could potentially lead down a road that is unhelpful but but you have your perfect plan and lord it is through that plan that you bring us the hope of walking in eternal relationship with you so we thank you for the gift of that this christmas as we've moved now out of christmas day and into this week we just pray that you would make our hearts worshipful and thankful and adoring you for what it is that you've accomplished. We pray all of this in Jesus's name.